0: Well, I am so grateful to be here, and I know I've said that many, many times. Um, I'm thankful to have the privilege of opening God's Word and preaching from this pulpit. And uh, I I have missed this uh, more than I can even begin to express. I've longed for this, and I've been reminded in a healthy way that God doesn't need me to do this. And uh, I've had the privilege as a member here of sitting for the last eight weeks and hearing some amazing preaching, and I'm so grateful for the men that have opened up the Word of God and ministered to us as a church, and it's healthy, I think, for pastors sometimes to sit as members and uh, receive the ministry of the Word, and I certainly have been blessed by that, but I'm thankful that God has graciously allowed me the opportunity to be here this morning, and that you have graciously agreed to come and hear the Word of God expectantly. And to receive the, the Spirit's work gratefully in your heart. It's a little odd to me, at least as I was kind of getting ready for this, to think of Christmas Eve on Sunday morning. Does that seem a little odd to you? It almost seems like Christmas Eve should be celebrated at night. And here we are celebrating it on Sunday morning. And I'm thankful that uh, that we are here on Sunday morning, and hopefully, as we look at the text before us, uh, uh, the discomfort, at least for me, will go away. Um, I was trying to think through how to go at Advent season, uh, and I've had quite a bit of time to think about it. You know, sometimes uh, events like Christmas and Easter, which are so significant in the Christian life, for a pastor are very difficult when you try to think of, now, what can I say uh, that I didn't say last year? Or what can I say that I didn't say two years ago? And so sometimes as we kind of try to think through how to come at a season like Christmas or like Easter, it becomes challenging. And so uh, every year as I look to these seasons, I ask God, Lord, help me to see something that you put there that you want to work in my heart and in my life, and then I want that to be the overflow of what comes out when we gather together. And so this year, as I've been thinking through the Advent season, I became fascinated with with the very last thing that was on, on Joseph's mind. If you stop and think about it, when Joseph became aware that Mary, his betrothed, beloved uh, wife to be. And and as Doug Bookman so eloquently shared with us, that was considered a marriage. Even though they weren't uh, united physically and they weren't yet dwelling together, it was a marriage. And if you read the text carefully, it actually describes and speaks to Joseph and Mary as husband and wife, even though they're not yet together. And so uh, we heard that so eloquently from uh, Doug, and so here is uh, here is Joseph, and he's looking forward to the culmination of the betrothal period, and uh, and Mary has had this unusual sort of unexplained absence, where she went and spent some months with her cousin Elizabeth, and when she came back shortly after, Joseph became aware that she came back different than she went. And so, over time, it became known that she was with child. Now, normally, when uh, a couple uh, discovers that they're about to have a child, it's a celebratory moment. It's happy. It's shocking. It's stunning. It's scary. It's happy, all wrapped up in one. And then people start wondering, okay, do you know when the baby's going to be born? Well, of course, we know that, hopefully. And uh, uh, do you know if it's going to be a boy or a girl? Well, no, maybe we do, maybe we don't. We're going to not say, we're going to say, we're going to have a gender reveal party, we're going to, whatever, however that works uh, in in today's world. And then eventually, people are going to ask about the name. Have you picked a name? I think if we really could crawl into Joseph's head as we come into this text, the last thing he's thinking about is the name of this baby. He's wondering how in the world did this happen? And whose baby is it? Because one thing Joseph knows for sure is that this baby is not his. Here's a woman who he's been betrothed to, and all of a sudden she comes, and it becomes known that she's with child, and Joseph's got 101 thoughts going on in his head. And I guarantee the last of them is, what are we going to name this baby? But I want to suggest something to you. That is the foremost thought in Matthew's mind. What is least important to Joseph, the name of this baby, is front and center in Matthew's first chapter. In fact, in this chapter, we are given five names or titles that are going to be ascribed to this infant. No less than 10 different times, those names and those titles are going to occur in the text. Sometimes they're going to be individual. Sometimes they're going to be together. But there are five major names and titles and they are mentioned 10 times in this text. And so I want to suggest to you that what maybe was of least importance to Joseph at the moment was of great importance to God. And so I began thinking about the significance of this theme that sort of is woven in the first chapter of Matthew's gospel. And so last Sunday evening, we had our sort of Christmas Eve celebration and sing together over at PBC Maine, and I spoke briefly on the first idea that I think Matthew wants us to catch. He wants us to see the beauty of these names. And then last night, our Slavic church, and PBC has uh, had such a wonderful uh, part in starting a Slavic church in Anderson, and uh, as in, in middle of October this year, we sort of graduated them and launched them into their own building with their own pastor, and so uh, this week they reached out and said, Pastor Sam, is there any way you could come? We're going to have our annual Christmas celebration. We'd like for you to come and preach. And so yesterday afternoon, Beth and I got to go. Uh, there were about 200 people there. It was a wonderful time. And I had the opportunity to speak on the second idea that I think Matthew lays out here, and that is simply that these names are not just beautiful. They're, they are wonder-inspiring names. They cause us to marvel. They, cause a, they are jaw-dropping names, in other words, when we use the word wonder And so we talked yesterday afternoon briefly about the wonder of these names. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the amazing royal authority and majesty of these names. But this morning, I want us to look at the power of these names and the glory of these names. And so to help us do that, I want us to let Matthew take us through this text and I want, I want him to sort of unfold it as it occurs in the narrative. And we're going we're gonna to talk briefly along the way at places where Matthew wants us to stop and, and catch something. You know, sometimes we get so familiar with this narrative, especially this narrative in Luke, uh, Luke's account, that we, we don't rush through it. Certainly you don't want to imply that we just sort of rush through this We actually read this narrative often. Most of us read it at least once or twice a year. So it's a very familiar narrative. But sometimes something that is so familiar, our mind just goes to the next line, and we don't always pick up what Matthew intended for us to see. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want Matthew to unfold the text for us. And what I want you to see, if you want to sort of back up and kind of look at it from Matthew's perspective, I think if Matthew were here, he would say, I want you to see in the power and the glory of these names, two amazing things that God is doing that are unexpected. And they're stunning. They're jaw-dropping. The first of those things is that through Jesus, God is going to resolve our greatest problem. And it might surprise you to think uh, that when this great problem was announced to Joseph, it was not necessarily the biggest problem in his mind. It was like sort of, yeah, 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 but I got a bigger problem than that. And when we think about our greatest problem from God's perspective, it might surprise us that we would also have that same ideal. No, no, Lord, I, I get it. I need that, and I'm thankful that you came to do that, but I really need you to do this. And so Matthew is going to help us stop for a moment and look at this text, and he's saying to us, I want you to see the stunning thing that God is doing through the names, and the power and the glory of those names have resulted in two amazing things. One of them is that God will resolve our greatest problem, and secondly, God will fulfill His greatest promise. God will resolve our greatest problem and God will fulfill His greatest promise. Now, I want you to be listening for those two things as we listen to Matthew. And the very first place that Matthew parks is a reputation that is at risk. There is a reputation that is at risk. And you can see it here in the text. Look at verses 18 and 19 that we read together. The birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. Now, that's the second time Matthew has made that comment. Go back to verse 1, and you'll see it there again, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So two times, Matthew is going to make a statement about the birth of this individual that Joseph has discovered is going to come into his life. And immediately, as you look at these two statements, if you were Matthew's readers, not Joseph because he's in shock, but if you were Matthew's readers and you read those two statements, your eye would immediately pick up two things. You would pick up the word Christ... In that word in the Hebrew text or in the language in which uh, uh, Jesus spoke, Aramaic and later Greek, that term was the word for Messiah. We are reading about the birth of the long-awaited Messiah. And as we get into the first part of the chapter, Matthew says, now let me tell you who he is, and I want you to be connected to two great covenants. He is the son of Abraham, so this child is going to fulfill the Abrahamic promise, and he's also the son of David. He is going to be the culmination and the fulfillment of the promise God gave to David. Two great promises. Remember I said, Matthew wants you to see in the narrative that we're looking at that one of the things God is doing is fulfilling His greatest promise. And you would say, well, is it, is it the promise that He gave to Abraham? As great as that was, I don't think it was. Is it the promise He gave to David? As great as it was, I'm not sure. That's what Matthew wants us to see. Although he certainly connects us to those in the first part of the chapter. So the first thing they would pick up is the word Christ. The second thing they would pick up is the word genealogy or generation. It's the word that we get the term Genesis from. And so you could read it this way in Matthew chapter 1 the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. And if you were an old testament, Listener to Matthew, you would immediately go back to another place in your Bible where that exact statement is made, and it is in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, where it talks about the book of the generations of Adam. And all of a sudden, this text sort of has a light that comes right out of verse 1 that starts blinking. And Matthew is making that light blink to make sure you and I don't miss something huge. The person about to be born isn't just the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And it isn't just the fulfillment of the Davidic promise. God said to David, I'm going to give you a son. Actually, what Matthew wants you to see with that blinking light in chapter 1 that takes you all the way back to Genesis 5 is that the person coming into the world is another Adam. He is a second Adam. And when we get into the text that begins in verse 18, we're going to find out that just like the first Adam was generated by a direct act of creation, the second Adam that is about to be born, the baby in Mary's womb, was also generated by a direct act of creation. But Joseph doesn't know any of that. All he knows is that he's got a massive problem. He's a just man, the text says, which means that he was concerned about the law of Moses, and he's got a problem. If Joseph were here, he would say, Pastor Sam, I appreciate the son of David bit, and I appreciate the son of Abraham bit, and, and that thing about Adam is a little bit interesting to me. But I don't have time to mess with that right now. I've got a massive problem on my hands. And the reputational risk to Joseph was of such great concern that there was the real possibility he would miss the amazing, stunning thing that God was about to do. And you know that happens to us sometimes. I come to church... We hear God's Word preached, and I know it's happened to me. I mean, for eight weeks now, I've had the wonderful joy of listening to God's Word, and sometimes you come in the door, and you're seated, and your heart's there, but your head is somewhere else. Has that ever happened to you? You know, here you are, and, and man, the, you know, we're up here, and we're, we're just like, wow, this is so amazing, and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know you're excited about that, Pastor Sam, and it's, it's wonderful ideas, and, and it's great. And like, Man, I got this issue over here. And this oh, this issue over here is just like it's overwhelming me this thing that's going on in my life I don 't know what to do I've, I've just tried to resolve it every way i'm just I'm torn up and here you are talking about some Greek word that you figured out in your study and you're so excited about that and 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 that's great and I'm sure it's good and of course it's good because it 's the Bible and so but, but I 'm just letting you know pastor you're not this is like your internal conversation i'm just letting you know pastor. I got this issue here, and you're not even close. Joseph's like, you know what? Uh, son of David bit, son of Abraham bit, uh, uh, Adam bit, fine. But I got a problem. And my problem is Moses. Because Moses told me what I'm supposed to do about Mary. If you go back to. Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 through 27, it's stunning what Moses told people like Joseph to do. If there is a woman who's betrothed and she shows up pregnant and the pregnancy is not the result of her betrothed, take her out and stone her. I mean, Joseph's got a problem. And you could sit here and talk about the son of David and the son of Abraham and the Adam thing all you want, but he has a problem. And the problem is, what do I do with Mary? Because if I, if I marry her, then people are going to think that the baby's mine and it's not mine. I'm a just man. If I don't marry her, then people are going to know that the baby isn't mine, and now we get a bigger problem. And I am a compassionate man. I am a kind man. I don't know what to do here. Little did he know that the son of Abraham bit, and the son of David bit, and the Adam bit is actually the way God is going to resolve his Mary problem. Because here you have, in one individual, a tiny microcosm of what the whole dilemma spiritually is about our salvation. God says, I am a just God, and and therefore I've got to do this, but I'm a compassionate God, and I want to do this, and how am I going to get these two things together? There's a relational problem that we kind of slip over, but it's on a huge level. And Matthew says, look, before you go any further, I don't want you to miss that because that's where you live. You and I live where we come to church and we hear good preaching and it's all about things that sometimes don't really relate to what's going on in our life. And the temptation is to to sort of figure out, okay, well that that's, you know, that's all good and that's great, but I'm just going to go over here because this guy He's always talking about stuff that relates to me. And I would suggest to you something. That that the things that may not have made sense to Joseph that, that sort of just got washed away in the background because of his big problem with Mary were actually the answer to the problem. And God says to Joseph, now Joseph, I want you to know something that would change everything. What is going on in Mary is not immoral. What is going on in Mary is something so stupendous that the only way I can describe it to you is this, what is conceived in her came out of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God, the third member of the Trinity, has been orchestrating all of this and the mess you think you're in is actually the exact place God wants you to be. Have you ever thought that, that that moment in your life where all of this tension comes together and you would do anything to get rid of the tension, you would do, do anything to resolve? Have you ever thought for just a moment that you may be in a Joseph moment? And the thing that is going on that is so stupendous to you and so frustrating to you and, and so unresolvable to you may be the very thing and the very place where God is about to break in because it is of the Holy Spirit. So that's the first thing I want uh, us to note that I think Matthew would like us to see. There's a second thing, and that is this. There is a problem to be resolved, and you can see this in verse 20. As he considered these things, behold... In other words, Matthew says, listen, look. That word behold is like an attention getter. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David. Now, I don't know if you mark your Bible or you you do something to sort of highlight things, but this is a place where I would make a little note or a little highlight. That term, son of David, has been referred to already in the first part, but it's been assigned to Jesus. The baby that will be born is the son of David. But here that term occurs. It's the only time in your entire Bible where this term is used for somebody other than Jesus or other than Messiah. And so here it is to Joseph. Joseph, son of David. You say, well, well, Pastor, what's the problem? I mean, obviously we've already talked about the relational, reputational crisis, but what's the real problem? Well, the real problem comes in the identity that the angel gives to Joseph. Joseph, you're the son of David. And you say, well, Pastor, you know, man, that's great, but I, I really don't see the problem. Well, here's the problem. Messiah had to be a son of David, legitimate son of David, to sit on David's throne and wear David's crown and the angel is alerting you and alerting me and alerting all of Matthew's readers that the legitimate line through which messiah had to come was through joseph mary was also a descendant of david but if you trace her just her genealogy back in luke chapter 2 that genealogy kind of takes a turn through the backwaters of the david lineage And she comes up through a secondary son named Nathan. If you want to know where the royal right to sit on David's throne goes generationally down the line, it's right here in Matthew chapter 1. If you are looking for the official son of David who came down through the line of men who had the lawful, legitimate right to sit on David's throne. It's the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And that genealogy ends with a man named Joseph. And here's the problem. Joseph was not the father of Jesus. So how in the world are we going to find a solution to this problem, it seems to me that the virgin birth, the virgin conception actually, uh, resolved a massive problem. How in the world are we going to get a second Adam who came out as a direct act of creation from God just like the first Adam did? How are we going to get that? And the answer is there has to be a divine act of creation in Mary's womb And so we have to have a virgin conception if we're going to have the God-man who can come and live a sinless life and bring about the salvation that we need. We, We need a virgin birth. And so when God orchestrated the virgin birth, he solved a problem, but it appears that he created another problem. We could put it this way. In the first stop, the reputational crisis spot, Joseph had a problem that only God could solve. But in the second spot, the problem that Matthew wants us to focus on, God has a problem or Jesus has a problem that only Joseph can resolve. And so how in the world are we going to see God bring Jesus into the line that we just read in the first part of the chapter that ends in Joseph, when Joseph isn't the father? And that's what we see God do. Notice what he says in the text. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. And then a little bit later on, she will bear a son and you will call, you will name his name Jesus. And so the divine resolution to all of this is this. By marrying Mary, Joseph would bring Jesus into his home and signal to all that he was accepting Jesus as a true and lawful member of his family. And by naming Jesus, he was actually doing something legal. He was granting to Jesus all of the legal rights, all of the lawful standing that belonged to him when he named Jesus and he gave him all of the rights as a legitimate son. And so this idea of Joseph marrying Mary and bringing Jesus into his home and then naming him, it would be sort of our version of adoption, naming Jesus and bestowing upon him all the rights and all the lawful privileges that belonged to Joseph now belong to Jesus. And among them was the title, Son of David. You see how God resolved this problem? And by the way, just like we saw this tension in the first stop that Matthew had, so how how does a just God and a compassionate God bring his compassion, his mercy, and his justice together? And the answer is in this baby. The other answer is how in the world do, do we, the outsiders, become insiders? and have all the rights and privileges of becoming God's children? And the answer is the same way Jesus became a person who had all the rights and privileges of Joseph's line, and it's through adoption. And that's one of the reasons why in the New Testament, when it talks about salvation, one of the images is this adoption image. And so there is a problem that had to be resolved. And that brings us to the third thing that Matthew wants us to see, and that is this. And Let me kind of lay it out to you this way. It's very clear as you read this text, isn't it, that God is orchestrating every single thing we're reading. And he's been orchestrating this for a long time. I mean, all the way back to Adam, all the way through Abraham, all the way through David, all the way down to the fact that Joseph's father's name was Jacob. And you you go all the way back to Genesis and sort of at the very culminating moments in Israel's history when they most need to be delivered. There is a man named Jacob who has a son named Joseph. And here we have in Matthew chapter 1 a genealogy that ends in a man named Jacob having a son named Joseph. There are all these interconnections that Matthew is sort of weaving into this to let you know God has not been idle. God has been sovereignly orchestrating all of this. And so, you know, some of the questions that sort of I wrestled through as I was looking at this is like, God, this is super complicated. I mean, you solve one problem with a virgin birth, but you create another in the legal line of David's son. And now you solve that through this adoption issue and, and Joseph marrying Mary. And, and, but why did you do it this way? What is so important that it would merit the kind of orchestration and sovereign providence that we see in this account. What is the mission that you are trying to accomplish? And I would suggest to you that the mission is found in the name that Joseph is told to give the baby. Joseph here to name the child. That means you bring him into your home You give him legitimate rights as your son. He becomes the son of David. But you are to give him a specific name by which he is to be known for all the rest of time. (coughs) Can you imagine having the responsibility to name the most important person ever born on the planet? That was Joseph. And God said, Joseph, just like I've orchestrated every other part of this, I'm going to tell you exactly what I want you to name the boy when he's born. I want you to name him Jesus. Jesus is the New Testament version of the Old Testament name Joshua. And the word simply means God, Jehovah, saves. And so, basically, the angel explains this, and then Matthew says, now let me just remind you, he will save his people from Their sins. The reason I want you to name him Jesus isn't just because the name Jesus means something, God saves. I want you to name him Jesus because it is through this boy that is born that God is going to save his people from their sins. Now, this is an ancient promise that goes all the way back to Genesis 3, where where God basically said to Adam and Eve as they were driven out of the garden, I'm going to send someone who's going to resolve all of this. And later in Israel's history, there came a period of time when every year they would go up to the temple three times a year to worship, and as they went up, they would sing psalms. And the psalms they would sing were called songs of ascent. And one of those psalms was Psalm 130. And in that psalm, there are two verses that jump out of the pages when you put them next to this. And, and let me read them to you. It's Psalm 130, verses 7 through 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Hope in God. Why? Because with the Lord, there is steadfast love. With the Lord, there is plentiful, bountiful redemption. And He, the Lord, will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And here we are, hundreds of years later, and there is a baby about to be born, and God says to Joseph, Joseph, I've orchestrated all of this. I've orchestrated... Everything that resulted in the reputational crisis that you were in, it it resulted in the problem that I'm going to use you to resolve. And now it reveals the mission that I'm going to accomplish. And that's why I want you to name him Jesus. I want you to name him Jesus because he is going to deliver his people from their sins. Now, I want you to stop for just a minute and I want you to remember something. The text just told us. That Joseph or Jacob or, or sorry Joseph was a righteous man. He was a just man. Why would a just man need to be redeemed from their sins? You ever thought about that? You know as Joseph is listening in and the angels talking to him when he got to this part, he will deliver his people from their sins, maybe Joseph responded the way you and I respond like, well, well, that's great. <clears throat> And I'm sure that's wonderful, and and that's awesome, but I got a lot of other stuff I need to be delivered from. I do need that, but here's what I... If you're asking me what I need at the moment, it's this. And maybe that's where you and I live most of our life. We know that the main thing Jesus came to do was to deliver us from our sins, but there's a whole lot of other stuff we would rather Him deliver us from. And actually... If you start looking around the world, most people, most people really don't think they need to be delivered from their sins. Because if you ask them, they're going to say something like, Well, you know, actually, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good person. I don't do this. I don't do that. I do this. I do that. I go to this church. I've done this religious ritual. I'm good. Nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes, but, but honestly, if you look at my life and you compare it to the sinners of the world, I'm actually a just person. I'm actually a righteous person. And the angel said to Joseph, the baby that you're about to name came to deliver you from your sins, just like he came to deliver me and just like he came to deliver you. And and the sad thing is that most of us sometimes don't really think we need that deliverance, but we do. And that's why I think this name Jesus is a name that every time we hear it, every time it comes across, you get a Christmas card and there's Jesus. You hear somebody talk about Jesus. Every time you hear the name Jesus, God wants you to remember something. He came To deliver you from your greatest problem, and your greatest problem is not what's going on in your bank account. It's not the fact that you lost your job. It's not the fact that you're struggling relationally in your marriage or at home. Those are problems, but those aren't your greatest problem. Those aren't my greatest problem. He came to deliver us from sin. And that's why this name Jesus is so significant. Now, how in the world is this baby going to do that? And that's the fourth thing that uh, Matthew wants you to see. And, and, and so there is an identity to be established, and you can see it in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. All of this took place. You see that in verse 22? All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord spoke through the prophet. This is one of ten times in Matthew's gospel when he's going to say all of this took place to fulfill. This is the first time it shows up. And he points to a very familiar verse. He says, behold, pay attention. God said a virgin would conceive. Joseph, a virgin has conceived. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son." The The infant that Mary's about to deliver is going to be a boy. You're going to name his name Jesus. That's a male name. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Remember I said there were two big things Matthew wanted you to see. He wanted you to see that God was going to solve our greatest problem, and that's the name Jesus. But he's also going to fulfill his greatest promise, And his greatest promise is going to be fulfilled by this son whose title is Emmanuel, God with us. God dwelt with Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 2. He promised Adam and Eve that there would come a time when they would dwell again with him. And all through the Old Testament in the nation of Israel, God was at work to dwell with his people. Listen to Leviticus 26 I will make my dwelling among you. My soul will not abhor you. In other words, God says when I dwell among you, I'm going to do it in such a way, I'm going to orchestrate it so that when I dwell among you, my soul is not going to reject you. My heart is not going to abhor you because of your sin. I will dwell among you I will walk with you and be your God and you will be my people. This promise is reiterated in Jeremiah 32 and Ezekiel 37. So how in the world is God going to dwell among people in a way that will cause his soul to be pleased with them? And the answer is this boy, John 1.14. We read that this morning in our call to worship. God dwells with us in the flesh. And so as Matthew says this to Joseph, he's also saying it to us, please don't miss this. The sign that was given 750 years ago, a virgin will conceive. And she did. And when that virgin gave birth, it would be a boy. And Mary's about to give a boy. And then there are These amazing names that Isaiah talks about, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, right? Remember this one? And then there are two names in the middle that are divine names, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. This boy that Isaiah was talking about was going to be the Messiah. He was going to be an awesome counselor. He was going to be the Prince of Peace. He was going to be the Messiah. But right in the middle of those four titles are two that tell you he was God. He was the mighty God, and he was the everlasting Father. And 750 years later, here is a man who's trying to figure out the mess that his life is in, and God says, now, Joseph, let me just tell you something. The boy that you're about to adopt, the boy that you're about to name, the boy that's going to receive the rights through you to sit on David's throne, let me tell you who he really is. He is God. And through him... I'm going to solve your greatest problem, and I'm going to keep my greatest promise. I am going to dwell with man. And that brings us to the very last thing as we close this morning, and that is this. There is a people to be redeemed and restored. Look at verse 23 in the text. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. We saw that. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. We saw that. But here's what I want you to make sure you don't miss. You see the little word they? If you go all the way back to Isaiah 7, the word is not they. It's the word she, the virgin, will call his name Emmanuel. And all of a sudden, God the Holy Spirit, as he's inspired Matthew to write this, he says, I want you to change that term. I want you to put the word they there. So here's my question. Who are the they? Who are the people that are going to recognize that Jesus is actually God with us? And I think the answer to that question is the group of people we were just introduced to when the angel said to Joseph, now name him Jesus, because he will save who? His people from what? From their sins. I think it's those people who are going to look at Jesus, and they're going to say, now that is God with us. That is Emmanuel. You know, there's only one way a person ever comes to that conclusion, and let me just give it to you straight. It's not because we figured it out ourselves. How in the world are people like us ever going to look at another human being like Jesus and recognize truly that He is God with us? He's not just godlike. He's not just godly. He's not just like extra righteous. He's not just like extra kind and extra, you know, extra authoritative. He is actually God dwelling with us in the flesh. We would never say that about anybody else on the planet, ever. But we say that about Jesus. In fact, the Apostle John at the end of the New Testament says, if a person denies that... They are not a genuine what? They're not a genuine Christian. So how in the world did a room full of people like us, common, ordinary people, come to conclude that about Jesus? You say, well, you know, I grew up in a home, and that's just what I was taught. Well, that's not why you believe it. There are a ton of things you were taught at home that when you got out of your home, you don't believe, right? Don't do that to your face. It'll stay that way. Remember that? You don't believe that. You do that to your face all the time, and some of you probably... You know, probably did stay that way. But there's a ton of things you heard at home that you don't believe anymore. But this is something that you did hear and you do believe. How in the world did that happen? And the answer is this. The same way it happened to Peter. When Jesus said to Peter, after Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, blessed are you. And here's why. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't figure this out because you've been hanging with me. You didn't figure this out because you've been in the religious talks. You didn't figure this out because you walked on water or tried to walk on water. You didn't figure this out because of any miracle I did. You figured this out because God showed it to you. Because my Father revealed it to you. He opened your eyes. And He caused you to see. You know... You and I have had conversations with people over time where we've shared the gospel and, and, and we've appealed and said, look, this, this is the most important truth you've ever heard in your life. And that person on the other side thanks us for it, and they walk away unconvinced. And you're like, man, if I could have just told a different story, if I just had a better book, I need better verses. And we come back and we're like, oh, no, let's do it again. I got more verses this time. And they listen to you, and it's like, well, thank you very much. And they walk away unconvinced. And can I just say this to you? They're going to walk away unconvinced every time until one day they don't. And, and the reason they don't isn't because all of a sudden you figured out how to tell the story better. It's that over time, the Spirit of God has been awakening them, quickening them, and causing them to understand until one day the scales fall off their eyes, and they look at Jesus, and it's like, oh, amazing. He really is God in the flesh. Paul talked about this, didn't he, in the Corinthians when he said, the gospel we preach is hidden to those who are perishing, but the same God who caused light to shine in beginning and shined in our heart so that we would see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, the truth and the beauty of the gospel in the face of Jesus. And that can happen to any one of us today. You know, if you're here this morning in... You're at that place in your life where you've been hearing the Christmas story your whole life and and you're struggling with the idea that Jesus is God and that he came to save you from your sins. Maybe the Spirit of God is drawing you. Maybe the Spirit of God is saying, look, I'm about to open your eyes. I'm about to cause you to see the beauty of my gospel in the face of my son. And the minute you see it, it's transcendent. And let me just encourage you to ask God for that. You say, well, I'm not sure I even believe. Ask God. Say, God, would you open my eyes? Would you help me to see what Pastor Sam and all these other people have been talking about? Would you help me to see what Joseph did? You know, stunning to me, Joseph went and did what the angel told him to do. He married Mary. He welcomed Jesus into his home, and he named him. And those are the very things we do. We need to welcome Jesus into our life. We need to give him all the rights and privileges that are his because he's Lord. And we just need to come and say, God, you sent Jesus to save me from my sins. And I don't want to miss that. I want you to save me from my sins. Lord, thank you that we can come. We can experience not just see and hear and sing and pray, but we can experience these events through the eyes of Joseph. Lord, you really did come in flesh, in the incarnation. And you did come to save us from our sins, but you also came to dwell with us. And through Jesus, your soul does not abhor us. We are beloved children. And so, Lord, we rejoice in that. We thank you for that. And, Lord, if there are one or two in our midst who are struggling with that, Lord, I pray that their heart would be encouraged today by the immense thing that you've done to bring them to a place where you can dwell with them and they with you. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.